The rest for today is the name of tonight's message. Rest for today, part two. And the reason it's part two is because I did part one on Sunday. I don't know if you were tuned in, maybe you weren't. I know some people tune in on Sunday, some people tune in on Tuesday. But what I was saying basically was this. A couple of weeks ago, I did a message called The Rest of Your Life. And it was this. The principle is this. God's rest, the restful type of living that God intends us to have is available to us and it's available to us now. When Jesus said, come to me you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, he didn't mean that that would happen at some point in the future. He intended that to happen No, He intended it to happen in this moment, in this day, at this time for you and for me in our lives. I wanted to bring the emphasis into today because as I looked at Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, when we read about how God's people missed the opportunity to rest, the word today, today, today continually comes up. And in the story that's being told in Hebrews 3 and 4, we're seeing continual parallels. We're seeing parallels between the Old Testament believers, the Israelites who left Egypt and God instructed to go into take Canaan, and us today, what we're like, where we're living. We see parallels between them, how they heard God's voice, but didn't obey it, and the parallel to us about how when we hear it, we must obey it. And we're told clearly that eternity itself is on the line. I want to give it the shortest possible recap to what it was that I was saying. Now, I know some of you are fed up with maps. I like maps. I'm going to show up this map again. Here was the situation that we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Going back to the Old Testament, the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They've been delivered amazingly, mightily, beyond their imagining. They've seen the power of God. And God, God leads them down to a place called Sinai, down in the modern-day Sinai Desert. Um, and he leads them to Sinai. And then he tells them to march up to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And when they get to the place called Kadesh Barnea, sorry, just bear with me for a second. Would somebody mind turning off the air conditioning? Thank you. When they get to the place Kadesh Barnea, when they get to Kadesh Barnea, the Lord says to them, I want you to go into the land. And we realized as we were reading it, that the passage said that it takes normally 11 days to travel from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. Just 11 days to get in, to, the, to make this journey up through the desert lands. They made it up. And so it would take them just 11 days to see the fulfillment of the promise of God in their lives. But they disobeyed. And as a result, they wandered in the desert for 14,600 days. That, brothers and sisters, is a lifetime. They wasted their lives they wasted their opportunity to enter God's rest because they didn't trust him or believe him or follow him. It says that their hearts were stubborn. Here's what it says about today. Today is the key word. We have to be careful of spiritual procrastination. A procrastination of any kind is not useful, but spiritual procrastination above all is the worst kind. Putting off something to the next event is, is the worst mistake that we can possibly do. Putting off our faith, putting off our trust, putting off our hope, putting off our dependence on God, putting on our depth, putting off our depth of connection with Jesus to another day is probably the biggest mistake. We can make. Here's what the writer to Hebrews said. He said, so God said another time. The Israelites didn't enter then. And it says, so God said another time for entering his rest. Rest was symbolic of the land of Canaan. It's also symbolic for us of entering God's rest, God's place of promise. And that time is when? It's today. Today 
is the day. I challenge you on Sunday to enter today. Here, I go on. It says this. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. They hardened their hearts through unbelief. Now, there's a big difference between unbelief and doubt. Because people often get these things mixed up. They say, ah, you know, I'm not so sure that I can believe these promises. The difference between unbelief and doubt is this. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is can't believe. There's a difference between the two. And God knows the difference between the two and knows the significance of the difference between the two. Don't let your heart get caught in unbelief. Don't be stubborn of heart. Don't get to the stage where you say, I just will not believe what God's purposes and God's promises are for my life. And that's what they did. They refused to believe. God instructed them very clearly, spoke to them. We'll look at it in a second. He spoke to them in so many different ways. And yet still they said, no, not for me. Can't do it. Too afraid. And they missed the opportunity and wandered for years. I have known people who've wasted their whole lives. People who've wasted their whole lives not walking in the promises and purposes of God. Not walking in God's rest. You see, the thing was this, and this is very important. The rest was theirs legally. The land was theirs legally. God had said, it's yours. You can take it. And God says the same. He extends the hand to you today and says, the rest is yours. It is legally yours. But experientially, it isn't yours. What was the rest God was talking about? Well, here's the Greek word. The Greek word is the word kataposis. And it simply means resting, dwelling, or habitation. It means to stop wandering and being restless and going from place to place spiritually, emotionally, relationally. It means to rest and be settled in one place. To be settled on your faith in Jesus Christ. It means to be settled about your future. Not worrying about it, but to be settled. To rest to dwell, to take up habitation. That was what the rest of the word kataposis meant. That was the promise that was there ahead of them. And so the writer warns them. He says, lads, they missed it. For goodness sake, don't miss it. Whatever you do, don't miss it. They missed it, but we mustn't miss it. And so he goes on to say, so let's do our best to enter that rest. He even put it in rhyme in the NLT. Let's do our best to enter that rest. It's there in rhyme. Do our best to enter that rest. What are you talking about, Michael? He says, rest. Do our best to trust God, to trust his promises, to trust what he said about our future, and we will experience that rest. And we must make an effort to enter it. We'll get to it in a second. And then he says something that we don't like. He says, but if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. We will fall. And it's an allusion. He's alluding to, to how the Israelites fell dead in the desert as they wandered around for 40 years. For 14,600 days they wandered around. And he's saying that if we disobey God as they did, the same is going to happen to us. Brothers and sisters, it is so important. This good news that Jesus Christ has come, has done it all, has rescued us from our sinfulness and our selfishness, and has done it all for us. This good news, we must hold on to it, and we must believe it, simply because eternity itself is in the balance. Eternity itself is in the balance. There are people that you speak to, and that you talk to, and you may have told them all about the good news of Jesus Christ, and they say, nah, I just won't believe it. Their eternity is in the balance as long as they refuse to believe God's word. But as you're reading this passage, 
something strange happens. Well, it's something strange happens to me when I read this passage. Because when I've been reading, I've been reading this for years, and something has always struck me as being a little bit incongruous. Something didn't quite fit together. And that is what happens in the very next verse. What happens in the very next verse is almost like suddenly Paul changes direction, or the writer, whoever the writer Hebrews is, he suddenly changes direction and he seems to go off in another direction that doesn't seem entirely connected to what came before. And so we're going to pick up that idea. Remember he says, do your best to enter the rest, he says, because if we disobey God we will fall. And then he says something very unusual. He goes on to say this, he says, for the word of God is alive and powerful it is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. He goes on to say, it exposes the innermost thoughts and desires. That's from the New Living Translation uh, version of the Bible. Remember it says, the Lord of God is alive and it is powerful. And you're going, what has that got to do with entering the rest? What has that got to do with everything before? He's talking about God's living word. Let me sketch it out for you in four simple steps. One, the step is to enter God's rest is the key thing. Rest in all of its senses. Emotional, psychological, spiritual rest, but also the physical rest of heaven itself. That's what's at stake. That's step one. Step two is we enter that rest by faith. By, step two is we enter by faith. It takes trust and belief to enter that faith. Step three is important. We have to believe the good news and the precious promises, as Peter calls them in 1 Peter. We have to believe the good news and the precious promises of God. That is step three. Where are those precious promises found? They are found in the Bible. In what is commonly known as the Word of God. And the important thing here is that we must be diligent. We must pay attention to, we must trust, we must cling to, we must remind, we must refresh, we must call ourselves back again to this incredibly powerful word of God. And he says, it is alive and it is powerful. Now, I don't know about you, if you've got a Bible, I use, I use, a, I use a standard Bible, so I also read my Bible on my phone, sometimes I read it online on my computer, but this is my favourite Bible, this is my, this is my li New Living Translation. The curious thing about a Bible is a Bible can become like a friend to you. I find that, you know, when I pick up the Bible, I, it's, it's, like, it's like listening to an old friend, it's like being with an old friend, because from it I hear the very words and the very voice of God itself. And that's really important to me. But it's a curious thing that happens is that every now and again, of course, the Bible gets tattered and gets worn and you have to get a new Bible. And I must admit, for the first while after getting a new Bible, I kind of feel a bit guilty. Like I feel like the other Bible is sitting on the shelf saying to me, I knew you'd give me up for a for a, a two-tone dual leather Italian Bible. Or, or, you know, I knew you'd give me up for a lovely uh, oxblood coloured leather Bible with gold pages. I knew you'd leave me in the end. I just feel guilty almost that the, the Bible uh, that I've been reading for so long, I'm not reading now, but I'm reading a new Bible. It's a strange thing. It's almost having like a relationship with your Bible. But I want to get to that in a second. Here it talks about the word of God being alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. The key thing here is not to get too hung up on the soul and spirit and joint and marrow. What he's saying here is that God's word goes 
It goes in deep. As you read God's word, God's word reads you. It is a living book. This is not like a novel, like a Jane Austen novel. This is a living book. It is alive and it is active. And as I read it, it reads me. And you go, well, I don't think I fancy that too much. For instance, it goes on to say that it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The word here that's used in the Greek is the word kritikos, from which we get the word critic, or which we get the word judge. In the old, in the King James Version, it says it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we, get, we can get this word judge wrong. because. And here's something that Christians stumble on all the time. When we see the word judge, we can often think, oh gosh, we mustn't judge, we mustn't judge anything. But the Bible does not tell us not to judge. Okay, let, let's, be careful, let's be clear on this. What the Bible is telling us is not to condemn someone. When Jesus used the word do not judge, he uses the word krino, which means to judge and to condemn something. Here, the writer to the Hebrews is telling us that the, the Bible criticizes or criticizes us. And the real best translation for it is the word discern. It discerns or exposes our innermost thoughts and feelings. It discerns. It's important that we discern good from bad. Not everything is good. And when we discern, we're discerning the quality of something. Is the quality of this as good as this? And the purpose of this word, as we read it, and as, it, as we expose our lives to it, as it were, is that it makes a judgment on what our lives are like, where it's good and bad, and it corrects us and puts us right. And it's all for our life. The thing is that we go, gosh, I don't think I want that to be exposed. My innermost thoughts and desires, I don't want them exposed. Ah, yes. But it is exposing them to yourself. It's not exposing them to your neighbor next door. It's not exposing your innermost thoughts and actions to somebody else or to another Christian in the church. It's exposing your innermost thoughts and motivations to yourself. The Bible is a powerful, powerful instrument. But it also talks about how it is living and active. Now I want to be careful on this. This is important. There's something we have to pay attention. When we talk about the word of God, we're talking effect about, if you will, four different things. We're talking about, first of all, we're talking about God's decrees. When God spoke and said, let there be light, God spoke. That was God's word going on. It was this personal decree. It was just addressed. It was a creative process. He left out a personal decree. The second is God's personal spoken communications such as when he spoke to Abraham or he spoke to Moses or when he spoke to Elijah or when he speaks to Isaiah God's personal spoken verbal communication is the second definition of God's word for instance it says in Exodus and it says in Deuteronomy that God's voice thundered from the mountain from Mount Sinai God's word thundered the third version of God's word is God's word spoken through human lips and that is through the prophets Hosea Joel Amos Obadiah Jeremiah Isaiah Daniel Ezekiel all through the prophets they were God's spoken word spoken through the lips of other People. The fourth one, and I just stick with it, just stick with it. The fourth one, of course, is God's written word. God told Moses to write his words. God told Joshua to write his words. God told Isaiah, for instance, to write his words. And that's the, probably the most important word to us because it is the written one. It is the recorded one so that we can all remember it. But there is another element to God's word. And that is God's word is also expressed in the person of Jesus 
Christ. And all of the things that we read here about God's written word, this yoki, that we read about getting God's written word, are also attributes that are applicable to Jesus Christ. He was living and is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We see, see in John's gospel, it says that Jesus knew all Men. He knew all men. If you take the things that the, God's word is spoken of as, it's spoken of as a hammer, as a mirror, as bread, as milk, as water. It's spoken bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He also said to Moses, that God, is, or God also, sorry, Moses also said in Deuteronomy, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Matthew, or Jesus quotes the same verse in Matthew chapter 4. And so all of the attributes that are applicable to the written word are there and applicable to Jesus. And so here's the important thing. Everything that we can know reliably and truthfully about Jesus Christ is written in the Bible. It is written in the Bible. Everything that we can know reliably and truthfully about Jesus is written in the Bible. And because of the attributes that Jesus shares with the Bible... For instance, here's one other attribute that's really important. John's Gospel, chapter 1 says, Nothing has been created that has been created. For everything that was made, that has been made, was made through him. Colossians tells us, and also Hebrews tells us, that he holds all things together. He actually holds the whole universe together. From the black holes in the galaxies right down to the quarks and the subatomic particles all the way down. He holds the whole thing together by the word of his mouth. In Revelation chapter 19 Jesus is called the word of God. And when we see these attributes and I'm only just barely scratching the surface of it but when we see these attributes Jesus as the spoken word, as the written word, Jesus as God's decree, Jesus as God's word speaking as a prophet. When we see these now we can see how he can give us rest. Now we see because if he has all of this power, if these are all of his attributes he is in a position to give us rest. Let me continue on in my verses. It says, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. He is the one to whom we are accountable. And you know, first of all, we kind of go, oh no, I don't think I'm comfortable with that. I don't know that I want my life to be naked and exposed before God. You are bringing to God nothing that he doesn't know already. He formed you in your mother's womb. He has seen your first day and your last day. He lives in eternity itself. And so he knows everything about you. You've got to know this. That's got to be some comfort. That's a comfort to know. You know what? Whatever I'm like, God knows what I'm like. He made me and he knows what I'm like. He knows my faults. He knows my mistakes. He knows my qualities. And you know, he knows what I do in secret that's good. He knows what I do in secret that's bad too. But nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Can I say to you as well, that it's very important to remember that our, if we're pursuing justice, if we are pursuing, if we have been wronged, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. God knows all about it. He knows all about it. If you've been wronged, if you've been, if you've been spoken badly of, if you have been abused, nothing is hidden from God. And everything, for everything, there will be a giving of account. And then without even as much as a breath, the writer goes immediately back, directly to the person of Jesus himself. 
he builds this beautiful symbiosis between the written word of God and Jesus as the living, active word of God. Now, when you read your Bible, this is in a different paragraph, or there's a verse. But I want you to know this, when the writer for Hebrews wrote it, and I know you know this anyway, but I might as well repeat it. He didn't go, right, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. No, there is no break here. It goes straight through, and this is what he says. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven and gone to his rest, just Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. He's back again to holding on firmly to what we believe. Holding on firmly to what God says in his word. Holding on firmly to what God says in his word about Jesus. About our situation. About our salvation. Holding on firmly. Sometimes there's things in life that we need to hold very lightly. But the promises and the word of God is something we need to hold on to firmly. And he goes on to say this. This high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weaknesses. Hallelujah. He understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not see. He faced all of the same testings that we do. All the things that make us stumble and fall. All the things that make us anxious, all the things that tempt us and test us, he faced them too because he was fully and completely human. He faced them and he can understand our weaknesses. You know, we don't have to make excuses when we come to the Lord. He understands. We don't have to make excuses. If there's some excuse to be made, he knows it. He knows it already. But he understands our weaknesses. And yet he still invites us to come. He still invites us to come to his presence and experience his rest and experience his blessing and experience his forgiveness. And so he goes on to say, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. I love this. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So let's come boldly. Why can we come boldly? We come boldly because our high priest has gone before us. We come boldly because he already knows what we're like. We come boldly because he can sympathize with our struggles and our trials and our tribulations. And there he says we can find grace to help us in time of need. Every one of us needs that amazing grace. Would anybody out there say amen? I need grace. Will you say I need grace? Stick it in the comment if you want to. I need grace. I certainly need the grace of God. And you know, sometimes we go through our lives and we can forget about the grace of God. Just that is lavished into our lives. That is pouring over our lives in so many different ways. So let us come boldly. Before the throne of our gracious God and there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. For me personally, I've been praying about something for the last few years. There's been something on my mind that I'm not going to tell you about. But, but there's been something that was really on my mind and I've prayed about it dozens and dozens of times. I may have even prayed about this thing hundreds of times. It's something very personal to me, something that was really just on my back and on my shoulders. And I found myself praying about this very same thing again just a couple of weeks ago. And as I was praying about it, I could hear the voice of God taken from the scripture. 
where the Lord Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. And I want to put that out to you. It spoke to my heart. It has set me free since I felt the Holy Spirit prompt those words to me. But I want to say this to you if you're out there tonight. God's grace is enough for you. It is enough to get you through. Hold on, as Paul says. As Peter says, forgive me, Paul, Peter says, let's hold on to his great and precious promises. 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, he's given us these great and precious promises. Where do we find those great and precious promises? In the Bible itself. It is in the scripture. So it is in our continual familiarization and reminding of what God's word says to us, for us, and about us that we will find the rest we need for our souls. We have to be continually reminded and reminded and reminded and reminded. You know, thank God we have his word. You know, like I, I quoted just a couple of weeks ago, you know, it says, blessed is the man who, who delights in the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water bearing its fruit in season. He meditates on that word and it bears fruit in his life. And meditating on that word will give us the peace and the rest because we lean on the precious promises of God in our lives. But that can only happen in every day as an individual day. There is really, as yet, no grace for tomorrow. There is only grace for today. David King, he's down in Killarney, he may even be, or he's down in Tralee, he may be tuned in even at the moment, I don't know, but... David King said to me once, he said, there is no grace for the imagination. And all we know about tomorrow is what our imagination tells us. And there is no grace. Today, there is grace. I love when Jeremiah, the prophet who has been through some of the toughest and worst experiences that the children of Israel could have ever experienced. He was there to see the destruction of the nation in his book, Lamentations, with a book that follows up from his prophetic, uh, from his prophetic book, Jeremiah itself. He says this, you'll be familiar with this verse, I'm quite sure. It says this, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. There is grace for today. There is mercy for today. There is rest for today. There is provision for today. There is protection for today. But we need to go and get it into our souls. We need to massage the Logos word, taking it from 2D into 3D, from two dimensions into three dimensions in our lives. We need to lean on it, hold on to it and rest in it so that we will not miss the very best of God for our lives. I want to pray for everybody who's tuned in tonight. Like I said, I'm not gonna pray for very long. I'm just gonna pray for a few seconds. I, uh, maybe about a minute I might pray for. Don't, don't hold against me if I go over a minute. But I wanna pray tonight, especially, that we would have the wisdom to listen to God. I, pr I wanna pray tonight that nobody would have a hard or stubborn heart, even in ourselves, when we hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit, when we read God's word and it addresses something in our lives that we don't like, that we will, instead of resisting and recoiling, that we will embrace it and see God's best going to work for us. Wherever you are, would you raise your hands? Would you bow your head? I would like us to pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that Jesus is the living word of God. 
I thank you, Lord, that you have brought both into our lives, Lord. I thank you that as we read your great and precious promises, our souls are built up, Lord. Our minds are built up, Lord. We are emotionally built up. We are psychologically built up for everything that is coming away. Lord, I thank you that spiritually, Lord, we build ourselves up and we prepare ourselves for what is coming in our lives. I thank you, Lord, that your mercy and your grace are new every morning. Every morning. Lord, before we put our head on the pillow tonight, I pray that we would find that peace, that we would find that rest in you again. And Lord, before the world gets back into its crazy busyness and hurriness and rush and race, and we go back into the rest of our lives, however the new normal looks like, Lord, I pray that we would go back taking with us, Lord Jesus, the rest of God into the rest of our lives, Lord. I pray you'd minister your grace now, Lord. I pray you'd minister your mercy now, Lord. For those who want grace, Lord, for those who are restless in their work situations, who are restless in their relationships, who are restless in their hopes for the future, who are restless in their minds, restless in their souls, Lord, I pray you would minister your rest as we read your word and we feed our souls. Oh, hallelujah, Lord. You are the bread of life, Lord. I pray, Lord, as we consume your written word, the living word will come to life inside us and give us the rest that we need for today. And every day we pray in Jesus' name. And one last time, the people of God said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters, and go with you. And thank you for tuning in. Don't forget.